0: the thing that i find really interesting about bdsm is that it is presented very often as being subversive even being kind of queer in some way like it's messy it's messing with gender or this like identity politics stuff it doesn't do that like overwhelmingly it's it's women being really submissive in the bedroom and men being really really dominant in the bedroom i mean actually what it looks like to me is a really sort of monstrously exaggerated form of of masculinity and femininity kind of removing any of the positive bits and just leaving this a sort of grotesque imitation
1: Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host Megan Daum. My guest is author Louise Perry. This is a really fantastic conversation and you're going to hear it momentarily. But first I am obliged I'm obligated to myself, I guess, to tell you a couple things, make a couple of announcements. If you haven't noticed already, the listener support piece of this podcast is now on Substack. And you're going to find that at megandaum.substack.com. That's where you're going to go to hear bonus content, participate in comment threads, get discounts on merchandise, come to Hangouts. You can go there and find out about the different support tiers. You can become a subscriber for free, of course, but you can also become a paying subscriber at just $7 a month. I think that's a bargain, I got to say, and get a lot of very cool extra stuff. And that extra stuff is going to include writing by me, stuff that I wrote. And that's a a pretty big deal, actually. It It is for me, at least. And if you become a paid subscriber, you can read what I wrote. What else do I need to tell you? I have a second podcast because everybody needs a second one. I do it with Sarah Hader. It's called A Special Place in Hell. Uh, we look at, uh, you know, culture war stuff through the prism of our 20-year age difference. You can find that anywhere you get your podcast, but also on Substack at aspecialplace.substack.com. So that is that. Finally, you've heard me talking about my project, The Unspeak Easy. This is an intellectual community for free thinking women. Uh, I'm still working on the online community portion, but I can tell you that we're going to have some retreats coming up in the Northeast this fall very soon. The one to know about is in Stony Point, New York. October 25th through 28th. That's about 40 minutes from New York City. I'm calling these Sanity Spa vacations. How do you like that? And so basically, the idea is that a group of women come together, pretty small group, you know, 10 or 12, 15, and uh, we talk about how uh, the current cultural and political climate has affected our lives, our work lives, our personal lives, all that kind of stuff you know so we feel like we're not crazy we realize we're not crazy you can learn about that by going to the unspeakeasy.com and joining the mailing list i'll also be making announcements about the unspeaky on the substack and again in fact all of my announcements about writing courses retreats stuff i publish anything is going to come through on that substack newsletter and be on that page so Again, that's Megan Daum. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M dot substack.com. Okay, my guest, Louise Perry, is a journalist and an activist in the UK. If you happen to catch the August 8th episode of my other podcast, A Special Place in Hell, you heard my partner, Sarah, and I discussing and playing some clips from a conversation Louise had on Barry Weiss's Common Sense podcast. Uh, Louise has published an incredible book, incredible in many ways, including that it was actually published, I think, called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. It's a manifesto of sorts, but it's also carefully researched, really deeply considered, just kind of overall examination of the sexual liberation movement and the feminist movement that ran alongside it, and how it might not have been uh, as great for women as we like to assume. So Louise and I talk about a lot of things here. She has a lot of things to say about women's happiness over the last half century, even more so over the last decade, and why the prevalence of pornography has led young women and men to believe that sexual activities like choking are any fun at all. That is a question I have never understood, and Louise explains it better than I've ever heard. We also talk about the dating economy, so-called rape culture, whether the tech economy has rendered physical strength less valuable in the workplace, and whether being a mother is fundamentally incompatible with being an individual. There's a lot here, and I am really glad to bring you this conversation with Louise Perry. Louise Perry, welcome to The Unspeakable.
0: Hello, thank you so much for having me.
1: I should also say, welcome to the world stage, (laughs) (laughs) or at least the Western world stage. Your book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, was published in the UK a few months ago now, I guess. Yeah, beginning of June. Okay. And it has its American release this month. You've been all over the place. Some of our listeners probably heard you on places like Barry Weiss's podcast and and on trigonometry. What was the impetus for this book? Because you talk about a lot of things that you see as not being really useful in the way that we might think they're being useful. I mean, something like the the sexual revolution is a big, big concept and it refers to the birth control pill. It refers to second wave feminism. It refers to um, things like no fault divorce and, and just women being independent individuals with sexual agency, all that kind of stuff. So to say that you're against the sexual revolution that's a big, big statement. And obviously, that's the title of your book. I don't think you, Louise Perry, walk around saying that you are opposed to the sexual revolution. But what would you define as sort of maybe the three biggest, is it overcorrections or examples of overreach? Or, or like, what are, your, what are your three biggest problems with the way things have gone?
0: So, okay, so it's, I'll start with the denial of sexual difference. Okay. Which I think is absolutely essential to everything that we've seen.
1: Okay. So you're, so, so, and this is where we say, well, you're just, uh, an evolutionary psychologist and you're going to, uh, blame all toxic male behavior on, uh, nature.
0: <laughs> so I say that it's nature and it's nurture. Right. Which I think is obviously true. I mean, who, <laughs> who could possibly believe that it's either all nature or all nurture? It's clearly a
1: p- plenty, plenty of people do, but yes, go ahead.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's the, that's the really dogmatic position, right? To take one or the other. It's it's clearly a combination of the two. I think that very obviously, well, I say very obviously there should, it should be obvious that there are some really stark physical differences between men and women, right? Uh, women are the ones who get pregnant, which also means that we suffer all of the, side effects of um, hormonal birth control which for some women can be really unpleasant we are much smaller than men more physically weak than men particularly in the upper body it's the sort of thing that you don't necessarily notice if you live a kind of uh, laptop class lifestyle as, um, as, I, as I generally do um, unless you participate in sports or whatever like you wouldn't necessarily realize quite how profound the physical differences are but they are they are really really massive right like it is basically the case that when a man and a woman are alone together he can kill her with his bare hands and she can't kill him with her bare hands and that's just in in almost all cases true and has such obvious social relevance right and then there are the psychological differences which are more controversial and that and, and which bring us down to evolutionary psychology which has in general been rejected by most feminists as a inherently sexist field I don't dispute that there are some sexists within the field and I think I mean I I say not actually so much within sort of proper academic positions more within the sort of uh the amateur's
1: yeah, I mean, it's definitely well. It's been weaponized. It's been reduced into um, something very, very different than what it is supposed to be. Yeah, it it does frustrate me because it's so obvious that it's it it's, it makes so much sense when you look at it objectively and with any kind of substance. But it's just been kind of bastardized by the pickup artists and the yeah yeah um MRAs and the you know sort of manosphere
0: yeah yeah, yeah to their own ends and often I think quite. I don't think they always have a very good grasp of the science, but that that doesn't. I think the fact that they've misused it should not write off the discipline altogether. I think that the scientific scientific evidence of any kind is morally neutral. Right, you you, you do with it what you want to in a political sense, and I think it is definitely the case that if you're setting out to take a kind of blank slate view of humanity, and if you have your eyes set on human perfectibility and erasing any kind of differences between men and women at the psychological level, or even at the physical level, you're not going to get on very well with evolutionary psychology. But if you take a more pragmatic view and say, well, look, there clearly are some differences between us and 200,000 years of human history and beyond in terms of our, you know, our our older evolutionary roots is likely to have had some effect, right, on on our brains if we can better understand those differences is my argument i think actually we can we can better understand ourselves and where we've gone wrong because i think there is a kind of collective view among feminists of all stripes and among non-feminists too that the sexual culture isn't quite right that there are problems that sexual liberation projects hasn't delivered the goods are you often hear from Liberal feminists is that the problem is just that, you know, true sexual liberation has never been tried. Like, we we just haven't properly implemented the project and we need to keep pushing at it.
1: I think the problem is with the project itself and always has been. So much of what you talk about in this book has to do with the so called idea of sex positivity. And so, on, on the surface, I think we think about that in terms of not being ashamed of your sexuality, something different than the kind of 1950s model of, um, you know, the nice, the nice virginal girl, the Madonna horror complex, all of that. But I'm hoping that you can describe for actually for people like me who sort of missed this whole trend, what is going on exactly with the fetish community, stuff like BDSM choking, for instance, what are young women and men doing in the bedroom that certain older generations might not be fully aware of?
0: So there's like there's one survey that I quote in the book which finds that 50% of British women age 18 to 24 have been choked by their partners during sex. I mean, choking isn't really the right word for it. It's really strangulation because like you choke on food, right? Whereas strangulation is something that it's done to you externally.
1: Yeah. And I also just is this is supposed to be so sometimes this is called breath play. And, you know, you mentioned this in the book, I, I always thought this was something that had more to do with autoerotic asphyxiation, which is like something that men did in order to really get off. It was like something you did while you were masturbating. Am I? Is that right? And Now it's suddenly a, a for, for couples.
0: Yeah, because I think what's, so, so sometimes the defense of breath play among sex positive types is that, yeah, it's about like, if you deprive the brain of oxygen, it gives you a sort of high. I don't think that is what's going on though, because women are not doing this on their own. So occasionally you do find men will accidentally kill themselves during autoerotic asphyxiation, masturbation gone wrong. Yeah. There's normally like one or two a year in the UK. Yeah, that's sure what instead. I have heard about. Yes. Women are not, are not doing it. You're not finding women kind of having choked themselves to death on their own while masturbating. This is, <laughs> this is like a, this is, this is this very mature, a very advanced okay, a masculine all right. Sport. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, no, women are getting their partners to do it to them or all their partners are doing it spontaneously to them because it's actually not, I don't think it has anything to do with the oxygen deprivation thing. I think it's all to do with domination and submission. It's just, it's just a manifestation of BDSM.
1: So it's like a role playing kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and it's basically always always women getting strangled by men, which is also true in domestic violence generally. I mean, it's play acting at domestic violence, I think is the best way of understanding it. And like play acting in a I like I academically accept that there are examples of sort of responsible BDSM practice which are, you know, genuinely from people who are um really enthusiastic about it, really responsible, really attentive to their partners' um safety and consent and so forth, although I must say that I have heard from enough people who's not who've been embedded in like the supposedly responsible b d s m community and who say it's actually nothing of the sort to, to, to like i'm a i'm a bit I'm a bit skeptical about that, but I can kind of
1: well also how did this emerge like what the b d s m community Okay. First of all, this is not an identity category. It it shouldn't be. <laughs> I mean, I have people confuse having certain personality traits or tastes with having an identity, but putting that aside for a minute, I just, I want to understand this. Where did this come from? Did it come from pornography? Because I'm telling you, I'm 52 years old and this is nothing that I ever ran into when I was younger as a single person, as a person in the dating world, like ever. When did it start and why? I mean, I didn't really either. Age 30, this was not considered
0: super normal when I was, say, at university. I mean, like BDSM was kind of around and people talked about it and there was a generally permissive attitude towards it, but it definitely wasn't like, oh
1: yeah, getting strangled by a partner during sex is completely normal not at all so like it's part of the base we used to call it the bases it's not like first there's not first second third fourth and then strangulation (laughs)
0: base and then having a conversation fifth base yeah then calling Um. the next day (laughs) yeah um yeah yeah, not at all so i think it's been really really rapid in that sense which is one of the reasons why i'm skeptical when people say oh it's just what people like i'm like okay so this whole generation just woke up one morning and were like oh i really want to get strangled today doesn't seem very likely to me so i think that I think porn is definitely part of the story. It used to be this content was really, really niche. It was really hard to find. You know, if you were looking for like BDSM breath play content in magazines or whatever, you'd have to go somewhere really specialist. It wasn't something you'd like happen upon. Whereas now you see it on super, super mainstream porn platforms. You can see it on social media. Um, There's an amazing amount of choking content on like Instagram, which is supposed to be suitable for, oh my gosh. for 13 year olds and up. Yeah. So you'll, you you can easily just come across it accidentally, or just have it presented to you as like a this is part of the sexual script. This is normal, and then of course people are going to operate as if it's normal. Particularly young people, like young people are so obsessed with being normal, right? And, right. And, uh, yeah, and so if if you're saying like getting choked is a normal and B actually a sign of being sexy, adventurous, up for it, all of this good stuff, of course they're going to do it, right? <laughs> like, it, it. It just seems so obvious to me. I think that. One way in which I would depart from some feminist critiques of this phenomenon is I don't think that it is, I think to some extent it is feeding off some kind of deep-rooted inclinations within male and female sexuality. I think that it is much, much more, you know, the, the thing that I find really interesting about BDSM is that it is presented very often as being subversive. Even being kind of queer in some way, like it's messy, it's messing with gender or this, like, uh, identity politics stuff. It doesn't do that. Like, overwhelmingly, it's, it's women being really submissive in the bedroom and men being really, really dominant in the bedroom. I mean, actually, what it looks like to me is a really sort of monstrously exaggerated form of, of, of masculinity and femininity, kind of removing any of the positive bits
1: and just leaving this, a sort of grotesque imitation. Yeah. I mean, is it like, is it, Like a rape fantasy kind of thing? Like, are men getting anything out of this or do they think they're supposed to be enjoying this? I'm still trying to get my mind around what's (laughs) the point.
0: Um, Yeah, yeah. So I think that for the women who are into it, I mean, there are lots of different things going on here. So, you know, you've got women who are into it and who are sometimes asking their male partners to do it. Sometimes male partners, you actually don't really want to. You know, I've heard from men who'll say this like, my girlfriend really wants me to check her during sex and it, it weirds me out. Sometimes it's men doing it to women who really don't want it and are not consenting and uh, you know they're doing it completely unannounced and you get these tragic accounts from women who are like oh my tinder date just choked me during sex and am i am i prudish for thinking that was not okay sort of thing so there's there's a lot of different manifestations of this going on i think what's going on with the women who are into it that is quite common and it it does seem to have a kind of evolutionary basis for women to be turned on by men being like desperately into them right like that's something that you see in women's erotic fiction like Mills and Boone kind of stuff the common theme in all of that is like a romantic hero who is really really desperately
1: yeah he can't control
0: himself exactly yeah like to the point sometimes of using violence because he's just like so desperate and the speaking to evolutionary psychologists who are interested in this, like the the explanation seems to be that women are, when we're choosing a mate, one of the things that we look for is commitment, and is this guy going to hang around and provide resources for me when I'm pregnant, breastfeeding, etc. And if he's like desperately, desperately in love with you and will and will demonstrate his his love for you in all sorts of like serious, costly ways, then that suggests he's the real deal. So, so that's probably why we, why we see that so consistently across um, erotic fiction design for women. And I think that that is probably what's going on in the choking thing as well. That is a real stretch though. Let's just say. I know. Well, I think it's a misinterpretation. So, I, so I think what women think is going on sometimes with the choking thing is they think it's like a sign of passion right they think it's a sign of being like desperately wanted i guess kind of a manifestation of a rape fantasy i mean it's worth remembering with rape fantasies that women don't don't fantasize about being raped by like ugly men right like they they fantasize about being raped by men that they actually secretly really want to have sex with anyway but he's just like so desperate to have you right like that's that's the that's the scenario that you see in women's erotic fiction and similarly i think with choking you know what what women are maybe fantasizing about is that feeling of being like um swept off her feet desperately wanted by this like gorgeous guy who'll do anything to have you sort of thing. That's not I think how the men are experiencing it. I think the reason that the men are choking women during sex is because they've they've learned it from porn and it's it's just it's it's actually a really just a, aggressive manifestation of sexual desire that really doesn't have anything to do with love or commitment. Or anything. I mean, I do wonder sometimes whether it's also men trying to compensate for feeling emasculated in all sorts of ways.
1: Oh, you mean sort of in the in the economy or in the culture?
0: And also maybe just interpersonally in other ways. Like if you're not very mask, like you can compensate for it. I've always wanted someone to do. Maybe a listener can do me like a the Virgin Choker and the Chad Vanilla sex have a meme or whatever right because i do sort of think that a lot of the guys in the bdsm community are really weedy
1: weedy you mean like betas yeah
0: yeah ditto in polyamory they're not they're not chads <laughs> right <laughs> and i, and I <laughs> no do comment want
1: to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah the poor, poor polyamorous i i tend to beat up on them but they're uh Third easy targets. Yeah. You don't get a lot of like the, you know, the, the rugby team uh, is not uh, polyamorous generally, right? Yeah. And
0: they, or, or if they are having, well, they don't describe themselves as such, you know, maybe they are going around having like multiple girlfriends on the go. Yeah.
1: There's just another word for that, which would be um, promiscuous. <laughs> monogamous uh, yeah. yes. Yeah. Or a stud or whatever, right?
0: Whereas they tend not to be like identifying in this way. So I do wonder if the whole kind of like BDSM identity I don't know. There's some like desperately trying to reassert gender in like a play acting kind of way. It strikes me as really, really dysfunctional because it doesn't have any of the good sides of traditional gender roles, of you know, which do exist. A friend of mine was saying the other day that it feels like the kind of the modern progressive masculine man. He's like, he's still masculine in some senses in that he like wants to choke you and and, and, like loves horrible porn and is like talks over women in meetings and stuff like that but then he's also feminine in the sense that he's like vain and um loves getting into fights on twitter Mm -hmm. yeah um and fights like a girl online so it does seem to me as though we've kind of- Worst of both worlds. Like what we what we wanted was like Don Draper, who wouldn't cheat on you.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, good luck <laughs> right. <with> that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that was the goal. And then we ended up with this like, eaters, he'll choke you instead.
1: Right. So we had an unrealistic ideal and it has led to a sort of worst of both worlds norm. I think so. Or fueled by the porn industry as well, right? Which profits from like
0: funneling people towards more and more extreme forms of content.
1: Right. And I'm sure that the porn industry has played in nicely with the dating app phenomenon because you don't actually have to establish any real world relationship. You don't have to make any investment in meeting somebody or getting to know them in any way. You can skip right to this action.
0: And there's basically no consequences if you behave badly as well. Like, if you pick up a woman from a dating app and choke her without her consent, like, the chances of facing any criminal
1: action are so slim. Why? Because she can't find you? Or what do you mean?
0: It's just really difficult to prove. And also, most women don't go to the police. Like, I think that most, I think most perpetrators know that the chances of anything, any consequences are really low for them. And there also aren't any social consequences, because if you don't have any social contacts in common... If you if you're just like a random person from the internet, then there are just so there are just fewer penalties, social penalties that you that you that you risk. I mean, even just from things like ghosting or whatever, like bad behaviour, but much milder behaviour, you can pretty much do whatever you want. One of the things that drives me absolutely crazy about the sex positive valorization of kink: young women will be encouraged to go and seek this out. You know, like I I quote in the book an agony aunt column. Um, from the Times here in the UK, where a woman's written in saying, "So I'm, so I just got out of a long-term relationship. I'm interested in kink. Really want to find a guy who's like, you know, a lovely boyfriend, but also wants to beat me up in bed or whatever. How do I go about this?" And the agony aunt is like, well, you should just post an ad on the internet and say, you know, young female in search of someone to strangle her and just like invite random guys to your house. <laughs>
1: this was a joke, I'm assuming. Is this, uh, no, no. no this, this is the kind of answer sincere. that the old Miss Manners would have given and it would have been hilarious. This <laughs> no, was no, no, in no, earnest. Completely,
0: completely sincere. Yeah, completely sincere. And, the, and of course, what she'd say, if anyone, like me said, this is incredibly dangerous advice. Is well, teach men not to rape. Like it's incumbent on men to, to seek consent and, and not to abuse their their power. And I'm like, fine. You can't go around telling young women to do this. And it's you know, if, if if you go on the internet and basically like select your sexual partners on the basis of how much they're turned on by sexual aggression, what do you expect to happen, basically?
1: Um. So it sounds like you're, I'm doing the, I'm doing the Kathy Newman thing. So what you're saying is, <laughs> sorry, it, what, what I'm hearing and I'm thinking about, so be, the, the sort of feminization of culture as a whole has made men on the whole, not everybody feel emasculated and just sort of distance them from their own masculinity. And so they're play acting, they're playing it out on a sort of sexual stage. They're acting They're acting as if they're playing the role of masculine men because they don't feel that they are in reality. I think that, yeah, I think that
0: pornified sex definitely acts as compensation for men who feel emasculated in more important ways. You know, like you might not be able to earn a family wage, but at least your girlfriend will do anal. Basically,
1: <laughs> and and essentially, and everybody has to meet on a dating app. So, I mean, you're you're 30 years old. I'm assuming you you, you it doesn't sound like you were on in the dating market for very long. But in your generation, is it even conceivable that you would meet somebody at work or something, or are you not even allowed to approach somebody in that way anymore?
0: It's not unheard of, but the 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 friends of mine who are uh, who are still single, they they feel very strongly that. Dating apps are pretty much compulsory. It's just really difficult otherwise. Even you know, super super gorgeous friends of mine who are so obviously extremely attractive, and do get a lot of matches on um dating apps, much to the chagrin of incels, right? But they are actually really struggling to find boyfriends, despite having this huge pool of options. But but also feel as though dating apps are kind of the only way to go. Which yeah, wasn't true for me when I was. I mean, I've been with my husband for nine years.
1: How did you meet your husband?
0: Traditionally at university.
1: Okay. Are you? Remember
0: Princeton mom?
1: Yes, very well. Do you <laughs> want to remind us who she, who she was? She was the one saying, meet, was, your, uh, meet your man while you're in college because you're not going to get a better dating pool after that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, was she the mom of her? Or oh, she was an alumnus, alumna maybe. No,
1: this is a terrible story. Her son was currently enrolled as a student. Oh, right. And she was like, Marry my son, ladies. <laughs> well, or just, I mean, can you, how embarrassing. Um, oh, that, yeah. yeah, true. So oh. she, I think she, yeah, she wrote an article in, in some, he was one of the daily newspapers. And then she actually ended up speaking of Princeton. Yeah, actually a good friend of mine who, uh, Sarah Eckel, I will give a shout out to her. She, uh, she was, you know, a former feminist columnist and um, had written a book. Actually, she wrote this book called It's Not You, 13 wrong reasons that you're still single. And so her whole position was like diametrically opposed to Princeton mom. And she did a debate with Princeton mom and apparently mopped the floor with her. But anyway, <laughs> that said, uh, I do think, I don't think that Princeton mom was entirely wrong.
0: No. no, no, I think she was broadly right, to be honest. I mean, just in the sense that you do have an unusually large pool of single options available to you at university.
1: Right. I mean, not me because I went to a, what used to be a women's college, but yes, I, depending on the, on the college that you go to, yes, that could that yeah. can be true and it can also not be true. Like if you go to art school, for instance, not true.
0: Yeah. And there are now majority female graduates, as we know. That's right. Which narrows your pool. And also, you know, women tending to kind of want to marry up um, restricts the options in a slightly artificial way. But uh, but yeah, in general meeting. I mean, I think I think to be honest, pretty much everyone agrees that meeting the traditional way is generally better for a whole bunch of reasons. It's just a sort of practical problem.
1: Well, yeah, especially but because how do you meet them? Yeah, because there are so like you just said, there are so there are fewer men in colleges and universities now. Just the the dating economy has shifted. So yeah, women have to educated women have to maybe think about marrying men in trades. Which I would actually be really smart because those guys probably make more money than yeah, a yeah, lot of women yeah. You're working in publishing or something. <laughs> and a yeah. lot of
0: male graduates, they probably make more money than them. That's right.
1: We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wish there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. We're getting close to 100 episodes by now. I do this show every week, and I pretty much do it all by myself. I am not affiliated with any institution, media company, or secret investment cabal. I do it because I love it. And that is why, as much as I hate asking for help, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes just regular folks with something interesting to say. I hope you'll consider supporting the show. The best way to do this now is to join our listener community on the Substack platform. That means that even though you can listen to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, the community and listener support piece are now at megandaum.substack.com, And you spell my name M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M.substack.com. And what you'll find there includes not only stuff related to the podcast, but updates and information about everything I'm doing, including teaching, writing, the free thinking women's community, the unspeakeasy that I'm starting and anything else I think I should tell you about. You can subscribe for free or you can become a paid subscriber and get all kinds of extras, including early ad free access to the show, the chance to participate in monthly listener hangouts on zoom that I always come to, and even new writing from me, because actually that is what I am, a writer. If subscriptions are not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast's old webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donate button. Just keep in mind that it's the Substack page that will continue to be updated about the show. I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way that makes sense for you. Honestly, leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show and for making The Unspeakable worth speaking about. And with that, back to the interview. I think that the
0: project basically takes freedom as its primary goal and its primary virtue. It says that as long as we can empower women to be as free as possible, then all kind of come good in terms of all of the all of the negative we've, things we've seen historically and also in the present um, in terms of how women are, suffer sexual harm. I think the reason that it was always a flawed project is that it doesn't reckon with sexual difference, right It doesn't reckon with the fact that there's, a, there's, a, there's an inherent serious physical imbalance um in that women are literally the ones who bear the consequences of any any sexual encounter in terms of um pregnancy wanted or unwanted and also that there are psychological differences that the most important for my purposes is that it's very clear from all sorts of sophisticated research that women just they want to have casual sex less than men do they enjoy casual sex less than men do they watch less porn than men. They don't want to buy sex. You know, all of these things, which have nearly become freely available and socially acceptable post sexual revolution are just things that men want to do more than women do. So like all of the goodies basically <laughs> are being enjoyed by the half of the population who also aren't really suffering any of the consequences, which is just to my mind, obviously a really bad deal. And yet if. <laughs> you're really set on this idea that freedom is the goal, then I think you can kind of bundle that up um, in a narrative of women being liberated to have sex like men, which I guess we have been in the sense that you can now have sex like a man without suffering the social consequences that you might once have done. Although I'd, I'd, I'd qualify that. I think that there's still actually a lot of, there is still a lot of slut shaming that goes on. It's just not quite as obvious as it used to be and it's a bit more, it's more covert and sometimes it's actually more destructive in the sense that it, in, in the fact that it's covert. I mean, for instance, it's, it's much rarer now for men to openly admit to the fact that they don't want to have they don't want to marry a woman that they view as being loose, right? They do still feel that way though. And they will sometimes say so in surveys or or among other men or whatever. I went on um uh, Chris Williamson's modern wisdom podcast. And we we spoke about whether or not men would want to have a long-term relationship or marry a woman who'd had an OnlyFans. And Chris basically put this, put this question to his viewers, who are mostly young men, and it was unanimous, no. Right. Unanimous.
1: Now, uh, the feminist response would be, well, he doesn't want to compete with other men. That men are so proprietary that they want a woman all to themselves sexually in any way. So that's going to be unacceptable. Is it as simple as that?
0: I think it's to do with the fact that men kind of have two modes of sexuality, whereas women don't seem to, or, or not nearly as much. It's interesting to note that women look for the same qualities in a casual partner as they do in a long-term partner, you know, all the good stuff, good looks, good looks, wealth, charm, et cetera. Whereas Men have quite different criteria for casual partners than for long-term partners in that they basically have lower standards for casual partners by quite a long way. So I describe this in the book as um, the CAD mode and dad mode of male sexuality. And and there's an individual variation, right? Like some men are much more drawn to CAD mode than to dad mode. But I think that male sexuality contains multitudes and there's a lot of variation and variation across the life cycle. And it's also very much subject to context. But I think that what Chris Williamson's fans are identifying there is that they're quite happy potentially to to sort of kind of go around in CAD mode and and maybe have a casual relationship with an OnlyFans woman or to or to buy her, her her nudes. But having been on OnlyFans is a no-no when you're in dad mode, which is which is an example I think of how. Um, down the line, slut shaming is still absolutely in play. Right. It's just not necessarily as obvious.
1: Yeah, and there would be evolutionary reasons for yeah. them in dad mode to not want to be with a cam girl, right? Because they need to ensure that they're yeah, yeah paternal is their own. certainty. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And and that and that is really hard to eradicate. That is what we're discovering. I mean, people who really set out to try and eradicate it i.e. polyamorous. Who work very hard to practice ethical non-monogamy? Yes,
1: they work really hard. I don't think there's any (laughs) harder-working cohort in the culture than polyamorists. They just—they've got like charts, they've got spreadsheets, they've got work wheels. Yeah, the sex
0: bureaucracy is just (laughs) overwhelming. And yet, you know, you go onto any platform where polyamorists are discussing sex bureaucracy, and you'll find people who um, are really, really struggling with jealousy because, actually, and particularly men, and Well, I mean, as a rule in general, you know, I'm generalizing, but men struggle more with sexual jealousy. Women struggle more with emotional jealousy. Both sexes struggle with jealousy. It's a really, really hard thing to expunge because, you know, the fact of it is that we we are not completely in control of our emotions, even if we might like to kid ourselves.
1: Right. We are. (laughs) Well, I want to kind of zoom in a little bit and just talk about your background. So you grew up in like the nineties, right. And the, and the two thousands, what was the world of girlhood like for you? And what kind of woman did you think you wanted to be that you were supposed to be like, what did the sort of female landscape feel like to you?
0: Um, very girl bossy in general. I mean, I definitely didn't think that, um, aspiring to be a stay at home mom was a respectable thing to do at all. I think I would have been been appalled at the suggestion as a teenager. I do remember sometimes because I went to a um a girls' secondary school and I do remember sometimes these these sort of um foreboding warnings from teachers and visiting speakers and so on about the difficulty of having it all. but I don't think we really understood <laughs> what they meant. I think it kind of fell on deaf ears yeah, I mean there's obviously there are good there are there are good sides to that right i mean i I am critical of the girl bossy view and I now recognize having lived it that the having it all thing isn't actually achievable.
1: No. Well, it was Oprah who said you can have it all. You just can't have it all at once.
0: I think yeah, yeah, that yeah. Was that's a good way of phrasing it. Pretty close yeah. to the
1: truth. Although Oprah did not have children and I don't think it's any, I don't think she would have accomplished what she had if she had been a mother. But that's another something else I want to talk with you about in a bit. But yeah. Having it all is just a pretty hollow trope in the end.
0: I think to some extent, maybe you can have it all if you're rich.
1: Right. But then what is all? I can lubricate it. But then like, well, okay, then yeah, you're not like a hands-on. Right. But then having it all, requ- if, if having it all includes having, st- you know, multiple nannies living in your house, then yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 This is just not the sort of thing, right, that you that you think about as a, um, a teenage girl and young woman. Growing up in that kind of girl bossy culture, which absolutely encouraged me to cultivate my um, ambitions and intellectual talents and so on. So that's all good. Um, But I think I had, you know, really disregarded the feminine sphere altogether. You know, I think, I mean, I think that really sums up so much of what liberal feminism is, is all about, right? It's about having sex like a man, it's about being like a man in every possible way and rejecting women's work and uh, it's kind of taken me the actual experience of of um of having a baby and, and 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 a career at the same
1: time to realize that actually there's a lot to be said for the women's work yeah, so what how much of these ideas came about after you became a mother? I mean, I think your child is relatively young, so I'm assuming these were kind of brewing well before then, but like when did you start to feel like, oh, this isn't quite right like but the way I'm seeing this is not the same as I've been told to see it. Like when did that actually start?
0: So I did start, I was interested in motherhood as a topic when I was at university in that I, um, I did my dissertation on the history of obstetrics. I actually almost did a PhD on the history of obstetrics, but then decided to, to, to turn that offer down, which in retrospect was a really good decision. And, um, I mean, really just in an academic sense, and also because I'd spotted the fact that there wasn't a lot of work done on this and and that's basically what PhDs are all about, right? Just filling a lacuna. And um and it was it was striking to me how how little work had been done and also the fact that people did regard you as a bit weird for being interested in motherhood, right? Like I did a I did graduate degree in women's studies and I think that I was the only the only one in my cohort who was doing work that was
1: linked to motherhood. Wow.
0: Yeah. In a, I mean, cohort of about 20.
1: And was it a very, what was the spirit of the women's studies department at that time? And I'm assuming it, it wasn't yet gender studies. Like what was the sort of feminist ethos at that time? No,
0: although I've heard that it's now changed its name. Boohoo. The, so this was at Oxford at the time. It was one of the few um, departments in the country that was still good women's studies. Okay. Um, they've all now, they might have all now changed their name to gender or gender and sexuality studies or whatever. Yeah, it's a real feminist. I don't know what it is about exactly about feminism, academic feminism, but it is um really, really prone to conformism in my Well, that's experience. academic
1: everything. But yeah, yes.
0: but it, it seems to me like feminism particularly so. And it's amazing how really, really smart women can be really, really dumb when exposed to kind of academic feminism <laughs> and how myopic it is. I mean, that, you know, it's not just feminism that's missing from it. I mean, I remember when we did our introduction to feminist philosophy course and it basically went from Simone de Beauvoir in 1945 and then skipped over the second wave pretty much and ended up at Judith Butler in the 1990s. Wait, what? It just, what? I know because it, it just went from
1: wasn't, De to to Butler. Pretty much fifty like- years, yeah. Like almost nothing in between. I think like one paper by Marilyn Fry or something like that. But they don't even—they don't care about like Gloria Steinem. They don't—they didn't care about the second wave. Oh, it's very problematic again. Oh, here yeah, we It <laughs>
0: was really, yeah, just e- eclipsed amazingly. So, very little in there about about violence. Very little in there about um, biology. God forbid, you know. Very sort of angels dancing on the head of a pen. Sort of discussions about what a woman is and expressions of femininity and lipstick and drag and all this kind of trivia which I just have never thought is very interesting yeah so I was quite sort of dispirited by that experience really and and felt quite felt quite dejected about feminism in general I mean bearing in mind that in the UK at this time um so this was in like 2015 sort of time we were having serious kind of pitched battles about, um, the gender recognition act because grassroots feminist resistance to it was starting to grow at that time. And the whole issue of trans activism and feminist criticism of trans activism in the media was very, very live issue. And, you know, very, very clear within academic feminism that there was only one position that was acceptable on any of that. And I do think that the, I mean, where we're at in the UK on some of those issues is it, it, the Gender Recognition Act was not reformed in the end, right? The turf's won, basically. And there's been a huge change in what is sayable in a British context. It, it used to be, you know, 10 years ago or so that there were really only one or two feminists, um, Julie Bendel being the most prominent who were saying any of this stuff publicly and they were absolutely monstered not allowed to speak in, in universities you know julie was um i've known julie for a long time because she was no platform from my university <laughs> when i was an undergraduate and i um and i emailed her and said i thought this was really wrong and we met up and we've kind of been been friendly ever since but it was really just just her right whereas now that's not the case there are loads and loads of women and men who are saying these things and there are loads of media platforms that are now available to anyone with gender critical views and i think that, that that battle that battle over biology really i mean it's that it's it's the very first principle that i'm that i'm contending with like men and women are different we've had such a fierce fight over that over that claim and i do think that the success of the gender critical side Has opened up the way for some quite fresh thinking coming out of British feminism, not just from me by any means. And, and helped by the fact that we, we're not, we
1: don't have, as we were talking about, this, this kind of embattled relationship with the Christian right. Right. I've spoken about this with a couple of people. It just, that we, we are not yet in the US at a place where. People like Julie Bindle and, and Kathleen Stock, who does the who writes the introduction to your book and she's been a guest on this podcast. We we are not at a point where people in that vein can speak without getting so much pushback that it's barely worth it. You're you're very much ahead of us in that respect. But you know, I'm listening to you talk and I'm wondering if I'm just thinking about this right now, if part of the reason that the gender movement has been able to succeed so quickly is because so much of that second wave feminism, the stuff that was happening in the 70s and the 80s, emphasized that sex differences were not really as, we we shouldn't give them nearly as much weight as we have. I mean, the free-to-be-you-and-me era, that was my time, right? So I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, and at that time it was like, women can be plumbers, and you shouldn't assume that the firehouse down the street only has male firefighters living in it i mean there was there was an overcorrection and there was you know a, people were trying to make the point that only the l- little boys will only want to use toy guns because they were handed to them that there's no sort of like deep seated biological d- drive to have a have a gun in your hand all that kind of stuff and so that got baked in and was just very much part of what it meant to be an educated kind of enlightened person and do you think that that sort of set the stage then for just saying, okay, well, there are no biological differences because you guys were starting to say that back in the 70s?
0: I think so, yeah. But there are a lot of genocultural feminists who disagree with me on that point because, I mean,
1: well, they're very invested in that period as a conflict <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it does seem a bit. So they would say if you look at something like um, Free to Be You and Me, it's really, really different actually from certainly from the kind of mainstream trans trans ideology
1: oh it's the opposite of
0: it yeah Yeah, exactly so you know it's saying that actually your genitals don't determine
1: right well it's anti-stereotype yeah
0: yeah yeah and and you know it's definitely not saying that we should like sterilize gender non-conforming kids which is the point that we've got to with trans activism i would say but i think that you're right actually that it established the groundwork on which trans activism built. And even though that I'm sure was not the intention of the second wave feminists by any
1: means. No, it's a real irony. Yeah. I think it did contribute to it. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think it also, you know, it was partly the ideological work done by second wave feminists. It's also, I just think, uh, I think it's also a, a consequence of the way that our lives have changed materially. We just, we live our physical bodies, in every possible way, but particularly in our kind of our sexed bodies, just have less of an impact on our lives than really at any point in human history. You know, we, because of the pill, we can delay childbearing. So our reproductive lives don't have to kind of announce themselves, right, in an unwanted way. And most of us don't do any kind of manual work, which would highlight differences in size and strength. We live pretty kind of gender neutral lives generally. I mean, the nature of having service and knowledge economy is that women can basically do any kind of work that men can do, sometimes better. In fact, I mean, there are ways in which the modern economy is actually better suited to women who are conscientious and agreeable and little girls who kind of sit quietly on the mat um, while little boys are being diagnosed with ADHD, right? There are ways in which actually women make better workers. Right up until the moment that they have children. And, um, it's quite easy, I think, to operate in that kind of world and say that the differences, the physical differences between the sexes are trivial and, and the psychological ones too, which is why you get some really crazy statements from, from feminists sometimes along the lines of like, oh, there are actually no real strength differences between men and women. It's just socialized, yada, yada. I have a, um, quote from, um, uh, Laurie Penny, who's a British feminist writer in the book. As a, as an example of this line of thinking, where she says that perhaps the reason that um, sports are segregated by sex is because men are afraid of being beaten by women, um, <laughs> and that it's like to protect their their shame. And my my editor, who bless him, is a conservative man who did, you know was 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 blissfully unaware of a lot of this before before editing me. Was like she didn't say this.
1: She did. She did.
0: (laughs) I haven't made it up. I promise. Which is obviously absurd, but I guess can kind of make sense if you are very indoorsy and um, (laughs) basically like encounter physical reality very often. So I think it's uh, yeah. So I guess it's partly coming out of the ideological stuff. I think it's also coming out of that material stuff too. I don't think it's a coincidence that this is like the trans ideology has overwhelmingly been embraced by the elites. It's partly because the ideological stuff, it's also partly because the elites just live much more kind of disconnected lives. Yeah. Um, If you don't do manual work, if you don't like ever go to a farm, (laughs) you know, like it it becomes a lot easier to deny the existence of biological difference.
1: Yeah. Oh God, you know, I never, I think you're so onto something. I mean, I've thought about this a little bit, but not quite this deeply because you know, even when I was growing up, we weren't yet in the digital age all the way. I mean, we certainly were not we weren't working on farms, most of us, but I never had a sense that that there were not body differences between boys and girls and men and women. I mean that would be obvious. You would be watching the Olympics, right? Like as a little girl I would watch the Olympics, you know, on on TV the gymnastics, like everybody loved all the little girls loved to watch gymnastics, right? And mm-hmm. just the differences between what the men's gymnastics it, entailed and the women's, that's all you need to see. You're looking at upper body strength versus tiny flexibility, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it couldn't be laid out more starkly. And yeah, I think you're right. As the decades went on, I mean, not everybody's doing elite gymnastics. That's kind of a weird example. But yeah, we're more and more at our desks. Um, I think people are even, they're doing domestic labor in a different way. I mean, how many people in the elite like mow their own lawns anymore, for
0: instance? (laughs) We've got plastic lawns now.
1: Well, or we just, or we have, you know, immigrant classes that take care of that kind of stuff in the higher you know, socioeconomic echelons, there's just, there's so many different factors that have contributed to these disembodied lives. And, you know, I don't want to get too far down the, down in the trans conversation, because I talk about it too much on this show. And one of the things I really like about your book is that it mostly stays away from that. Like we're really talking about something that I think we've just kind of stopped talking and thinking about because we've become so overwhelmed with this new gender movement. I mean, I was really glad that you talked about the James um, Damore memo, for instance, the the Google memo. I mean, this is an example of what happens when somebody tries to say something that is true, and it maps onto to the kind of um, evolutionary psych stuff that's been so weaponized that people are just unable to to process it. I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit. I mean, this was the Google engineer who just you know flat rather flat-footedly if also accurately uh wrote a memo about why there aren't more female software engineers and coders for instance and why certain um initiatives to recruit more of them weren't actually working because the people were not understanding the nature of the problem
0: yeah and he was completely right i mean all of the science in the google memo is completely sound and he and he acknowledged quite rightly that we're talking about bell curves here Um, there will be exceptions to this. Of course. Um, but what he's describing is the fact that the, the, um, interest in things like coding, um, you know, very abstract kind of interest in things rather than interest in people is, is a trait that is found more often in men. And it means that if you are looking at the very tippy tail of the bell curve where all high end Workers at Google are to be found, you will expect that just to be a lot more men there than women because that's the nature of bell curves with slightly different medians, right? And uh, yeah, and he was completely monstered for it and uh, was assumed to be a sexist. I don't think he is a sexist at all. I think he's just autistic. (laughs) I mean, he says this himself.
1: Yeah, no, he talks about being autistic. And what's also unfortunate is that, you know, that incident went viral and then he got kind of co opted by some dubious figures. You know, kind of in on the right, it's oh, a shame, yeah, yeah, because he wasn't really able to understand kind of the bigger media pictures. I mean, I think that's what happens with a lot of these people who are trying to talk about this stuff in a in a subtle way they're They're really smart in some ways, but then they don't understand the way the media can manipulate your words and 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 they get kind of swept up and the uh, you know a little they get a little taste of. Not fame, but they just they they get a little taste of the attention that you get when you say something provocative. And then they kind of let some bad actors run away with with what they said. I mean, that's that's what's so frustrating. It's funny because I wanted I had an entire section in in my last book, The Problem with Everything, which talks a a lot about the same stuff that you talk about, but it came out in 2019. And um, it's I'm not sure people were quite ready to to hear it. Um, but I had a whole section about the Google memo and, uh, I was told to take it out of the book because it would, really? yeah, because it would just by your publisher. Yeah. Uh, because it would be the only thing anybody ever said about the book. That was the argument. Like, well, you've written all this other stuff and you've got this, this book is about many things, but if you include this passage and it was pages and pages long, I mean, I think I've, I read that memo like 17 times at least. If, if you leave that in there, that will be what the book is deemed to be about. Um, and I and actually, I, re- I regret taking it out because I think it's, it's really important that, that people talk about that incident for what it was. People And good faith people like us.
0: Yeah. And I'm not sure if um, publishing in 2019 was the problem because I know of other um, friends who've, who've been put under similar pressure by their publishers to, to remove stuff like that um, more recently. And I think that in a funny kind of way, so um, so my, um, we had real trouble finding a publisher for this book.
1: I was going to ask you're published by a small academic press.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so we—you we, know—I was turned down by loads of big publishing houses. Or sometimes we'd have kind of an editor who was personally quite keen, but then couldn't get it through commissioning meeting, or kind of got cold feet, or whatever. Um, it was really hard work. And so I ended up being taken up by Polity and had a really, really fabulous editor who, who was—you was fa- know—partly he's a, he's just a really great editor, at George Hours, but also he's he was just coming from a completely different kind of ideological perspective than me which was actually really healthy in sort of encouraging deeper thought and they were brave in taking on a book that is controversial and they've 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 done the same with some other books and and George is now heading up um, an imprint and another publisher which is um, focused you know specifically on on taking on those kind of heterodox ideas and I'm pretty sure actually that if I had ended up being published by somewhere bigger they probably would have tried to to, to soften my argument
1: a lot. Oh, well, every, forget the Google memo. I mean, I think yeah, you'd probably yeah. be left
0: with about 12% of what's <laughs> exactly, in the book. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Like every sentence is potentially counselable, right? So yeah, so I think actually in retrospect, thank goodness that I was taken on by somewhere that, that had the courage partly just f- from not being one of these kind of big name publishing houses to just let me write what I felt to be the truth because I think it's ended up being a much better book as a consequence of that. I mean, because there have been other books that have been published in this area. There's a bit of a a wave just recently of books around about sexual ethics um, and kind of pushing back against some um orthodox ideas but often in such a gentle way and in such a kind of convoluted way that you almost don't notice it <laughs> and i think i wonder sometimes i guess that's coming from authors themselves that they're afraid of being canceled particularly i think when when they're writing um as a- academics and they're clearly terrified of their students um or from um all they're, they're, they're in um liberal media institutions and they're afraid of being counseled by their colleagues. So sometimes it's the authors being cowardly. I'm sure sometimes it's the publishers being cowardly as well. And I've heard stories on The Great Fine about publishers being really, really restrictive and really nervous.
1: Yeah. And what they don't understand is that the more you equivocate, the worse it gets. Yeah. You 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 give an inch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. If you spend the entire time clearing your throat, all you're doing is signaling that you are that you're weak or that you don't even quite believe what you're saying. It's, it's, it's really unfortunate. But so how, why did you want to write this book? Like at what point did you say, okay, I want to really say something about this and I want to do it in a really strong way.
0: Um, I mean, I've been just chewing over this for such a long time and it's kind of everything that I've done with my professional life has fed into it in one way or another. And it I really just wanted it to to put it on paper and to have it available in particular to young women. I mean, I think in practice probably young women are quite a small minority of readers. <laughs> like the, the 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 letters I've got so far from readers, um, I'd say probably my most my modal reader is um a middle aged parent who's anxious about their children. And you, you can completely see why. But I I felt as though our culture really tells young women in particular a lot of lies. And sometimes they are apparently noble lies. You know, one of the things that I've had a lot of pushback on in the book is actually only a, a couple of sentences, but it's one of the things that some of my critics have zoomed in on is when I talk about alcohol and say that, um, you know, being encouraged to get really drunk around men you don't know, is, um, you know, a bad idea, and um, that's the sort of thing that that um, you're not supposed to say, right? You're you're not supposed to say it because it feeds into victim blaming narratives and so on, which I'm I'm completely aware of, and I and I do.
1: Yeah, it's just we've been having this debate, yeah. for years now. It's like we can't talk about campus sexual assault. Um we're not allowed to talk about the role that alcohol plays in that, even though it's like ninety percent of cases, if not higher, yeah right, and you
0: can't imagine a more effective way for you know young women to be incapacitated right than through um a binge drinking culture, which is really very recent, so I think this gets forgotten I mean even in like the the nineties, this was not considered to be um typical that me- that women would get really really drunk around men that they didn't know um and now and now apparently it's Completely normalized, and what frustrates me about that kind of that kind of narrative is that we all say this in private right this is this is the sort of thing that we all say to women that we actually know. Um, we all do all kinds of safety work and encourage our friends and relatives to do safety work and You're not supposed to say it, but it's kind of, it's, it's, it's hush hush. And it's something that you learn through experience and almost like a whisper network. But what frustrates me about that is there are loads of teenage girls, including me, right. And not, not because of any fault on, on the part of my parents or anyone in my life, but just the nature of the culture, which really minimized the differences between the sexes and really valorized the. The, not just having sex like a man, but living like a man in every possible way. You know this idea that women have the right to go out and and to be safe on the streets and to, to travel alone and to, to hitchhike and do whatever they want. You know because women have that right. And I'm like, Well, yes, women have that right. And obviously, you know if 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 a woman is assaulted by a man in any of those circumstances, he is the only one who is at fault morally. But also, like, get real. This is, this is the real world.
1: Well, this is the naturalistic fallacy, right? Just because mm. something is true doesn't mean that it's good. Absolutely. Yeah. But there's this squeamishness about saying
0: it. And I think that we do a terrible disservice to young women by not saying it. I dedicated the book to the women who learned it the hard way. Yeah, what did you mean by that? That I think our current sexual culture obliges women to learn it the hard way. Because they're not told from the get-go, I guess, unless they're lucky enough to have um, to have women around them who will tell them and, and they actually listen. Um, there are a lot of lies fed through a, a cultural narrative, which is all about um, minimizing sexual difference and valorizing women imitating men. Right. And these are the kind of lies that, you know, hopefully, as in my case, you know, you you kind of learn gradually by observation that this is not actually true, <laughs> and you kind of adjust your behavior and your expectations accordingly. But there are, there are cases, and I have personally worked with and spoken to lots of women who've, who fall into this category, where your life is sometimes completely destroyed by those lies, you know, by taking risks that you wouldn't otherwise have taken, but you were told were okay. And I think that, uh, yeah, I think that we're doing really terrible harm to to young women by not being honest with them. So the book is an effort to to be honest,
1: finally. And again and again, what we'll hear is, well, we just have to teach men not to rape. And that's so frustrating because it, it I, it's one of these things that have just taken hold. And it's amazing the way that there are feminists pundits and journalists who can just say this again and again and again, and they are lauded by the establishment. And this is, this is the agreed upon solution. And it's just empty. It's nothing. What, what does that mean? It doesn't mean it's just rhetoric. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We should teach wild animals not to attack. I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I mean, not that men are wild animals, but they sort of are. There are always going to be predators. Right? Yeah. And the predators aren't listening. They're not reading those no. commentary. <laughs> and by the um, way, there are also female predators. That's another thing that I think is under discussed. You know, women can be emotionally manipulative far more powerfully than men. This idea of gaslighting. I mean, I always say that's something that women have mastered. <laughs> men are only you know they're, they're really amateurs when it comes to that kind of uh, emotional manipulation like that's where women catch up oh yeah look at social media if you want to see
0: feminine aggression in play right like in on twitter everyone fights like a girl um <laughs> because by necessity it, for, it forecloses the possibility of physical violence that's right? true and, and so upper
1: body strength will get you nowhere on twitter exactly so you've got to use your feminine
0: tools like reputational damage and um you know turning people against outcasts from the in group and all this kind of all this kind
1: of good stuff that cancel culture has brought to the fore but this
0: is just girl, this is just girl school culture cancel culture is girl school culture
1: yeah you know the, this is something so i have another podcast a special place in hell with with sarah Hayter, and she's we have a 20 year age gap and we actually had a, a whole show where we talked about your conversation with uh Barry Weiss and Jill Filipovich and um we we were really fascinated by it. But you know, one of the questions that we ask ourselves often on our show is is cancel culture run by women? Is it led by women? Because it seems like men, for the most part, at least sort of cis straight men, are really just keeping their heads down. They're not involved in these takedowns for the most part. Am I am I wrong about that? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think woke politics in general is, read by women,
0: is, is led by women and that's evident in the data. I was actually just looking at some survey data that's just come out in the UK, um, though I'm sure this applies elsewhere in the West as well, that, that shows that young men are, getting increasingly, are turning increasingly rightwards in their politics and young women are getting ever more woke. And there's a really big gap, gender gap in politics, which didn't used to exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the. I mean, there's a whole discussion to be had, even book to be written about the extent to which the influx of women into public life over the last couple of generations has, has changed public life in good ways and in, and in bad ways just because of the nature of men and women having different temperaments on average. You know, women being more agreeable, for instance, um, and also more neurotic.
1: And also, you know, there are all the things that James Damore said, neuroticism. That was the word that got him in trouble. Yes. Well, it's just a, yeah, yeah, it's just a psychological term, right? It just describes, yeah,
0: it's this academic term. But um, yeah, it has baggage associated with it. So if you're not familiar with the psychology, I suppose. And also things like feminine aggression being very different from masculine aggression and, and just ways that women socialize together. In a single sex groups are are different from male homosexuality, um, right and I think that a lot of what we've seen in terms of changes in politics in political culture and stuff has actually got more to do it's not to do with kind of people changing I think in general if you see any kind of massive change in the way that the public feel about something it's probably not because people are changing their minds because people tend not to change their minds it's probably because um, the cohort has changed. Like, for instance, the, the increasing acceptance of um, um things like mixed um race relationships and homosexuality and stuff. You know, some of this is to do with um people changing their minds. A lot of it is just to do with people dying and new generations having different beliefs. I think that the same can be said of um, what I think of is the feminization of public life. Things like council culture, being girls' school culture, I think has a lot to do with the fact that we now, for the first time ever, have women at the top of all sorts of influential institutions, which is a good thing in loads of ways. You know, the fact, for instance, that we now have so much more public attention drawn to things like domestic violence, so much less um, tolerance for domestic violence. You know, it really is true that. A couple of generations ago, a woman walking around with a black eye just, it was just much less remarked upon than it is now. So that's like a, that's a genuine positive change, which I think I'm sure is to do with the fact that you just now have a lot more women in the police, a lot more women in politics, a lot more women in the media, you know, in every possible position of influence, there are women who didn't used to be there. The flip side of that is you also see toxic femininity playing out in public life in a way that it didn't used to.
1: Yeah. So this is fascinating, the feminization of public life. I think that you're very much on to something. However, what do you do about the fact that the people running, the people at the top, top, top levels, the people running Fortune 500 companies, pulling the levers at the highest in the, you know, the highest quarters of power are still white men. Now, I like actually what Jordan Peterson has to say about this, which is that the personality type that is even going to get to that level is going to have characteristics that are that you see more often in men. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but I what do we do with this? Cause I, I actually want you to help me tease this out because I think you're absolutely right. I mean, <laughs> of all we're going we're gonna go. I mean, Adam Carolla of all people, so he's a like a radio personality comedian here in in the US that you're probably not familiar with and he's you know he's he's a very insightful person but he's kind of more from this like a dry morning radio sensibility and he has a book called in 50 years we'll all be chicks <laughs> and it's about how everyone's turning into a woman so like he's he's kind of saying the same thing
0: yes
1: <laughs> and and I want to actually tease this out because it's true and yet at the same time the people at the World Economic Forum, those are men. Like, the billionaires are men. The tech billionaires are mostly men. Like, what's going on here?
0: Yeah, not just that they're men, they're also peculiar men in loads of ways, right?
1: Yes, well, and they're autistic men.
0: I was gonna say, Because they can focus
1: on certain things, yes. Yeah, yeah,
0: and the more that our lives are governed by tech, the more that we're governed by, you know, systems designed by
1: autistic guys. (laughs) And that's a form of patriarchy.
0: Well, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I think that I try not to use the word patriarchy because I think it's such a slippery term. I mean, it clearly has like a tight anthropological meaning. Um, If you just use it to mean societies in which only positions of power can only be held by men, which was true of our society up until pretty recently. Even if women always had some kind of authority in things like education and um, Sunday schools and all this kind of stuff, positions of power in public life. Were exclusively held by men and women were officially barred from all sorts of things like the professions, and it is still true that men predominate still in all sorts of positions of power. Which I think Jordan Peterson is right that is probably partly to do with men being more likely to be really kind of driven, disagreeable, well, or
1: sociopaths in some cases. Yeah. <laughs> depending on how you define high that. Yeah. Triad uh-huh.
0: traits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, being more likely to get to the top of say um, a Fortune one hundred company. Some of it is also just to do with reproduction, the fact that having children like, cannot help but interrupt your professional life. Right. And if you're aiming for the very tippy-tippy top of a profession, you're, you're less likely to get there if you're taking any time out to have children, which is why you see so few women with children at the top of politics, for instance, which does have effects downstream, I think, in terms of mothers' interests being marginalized. Um, just because there aren't very many mothers in positions of influence.
1: Yeah, no, see, this was fascinating. So m- Sarah, my my partner on my other podcast, she was fascinated by what you had to say about how the minute you become a mother, you cease to be an individual. That's not, I'm not quoting you directly, but you know, we are living in the, the cult of the individual sort of is the default position of kind of contemporary human civilization and outlook. And that really flies in the face of, what is required to raise small children? Yeah, totally. And so, how does that do anything but actually hamper us? Like, how can women be anything but the second sex ever if this is the biological reality? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you are ever going to get 50
0: 50 representation in certain positions of influence. I certainly don't think you're ever likely to get 50 50 representation with like mothers perfectly represented among the women. It seems, un- it
1: seems unlikely to me that that's possible because... But is there a way to reorganize society to get around that? Because then they, the feminists will say, and I, I'm saying the feminists in scare quotes because I actually do consider myself a feminist still, but people will say, well, we just need to reorganize the workplace. We need to make fathers do more work there's a whole laundry list of line items.
0: Yeah, it's all good stuff. You know, I think we should have better maternity leave. I think we should encourage fathers to be more involved in their children's lives. And that is mostly happening. I mean, I just, I just wrote an essay last week, actually, on the fact that men being more involved in their children's lives is, I think, becoming increasingly high status and associated with...
1: <laughs> well, that means you have a flexible job. That well, exactly. means you're not yeah, showing yeah, up yeah. to a boss every day or punching a clock.
0: Exactly. It's associated now with white collar dads with white collar jobs and i'll spend more time on childcare than dads with blue collar jobs which is exactly as you say just to do with the fact that the, the jobs permit it but it also produces a kind of positive status cycle where if this is something the elites do then the elites want to do it more and so i think i mean what i'm seeing among my peer group is is definitely i think like a dad who hadn't ever changed a nappy would not admit it i think it would be really shameful mm. um in my generation which was not true i think for our dads and for our, our grandfathers so you know some of that stuff is happening, and I think it's good. I mean, you know, if we're if we are now expecting all to live to a hundred or whatever, hopefully, in reality, the period if you have two kids and they're a few years apart, like the period of your life where you have small children is really not very long, and so it doesn't it doesn't make sense to not do any kind of paid work ever across the whole of your life if if you're if you're only spending say you know max ten years being at home with little kids um, so we do have to be designing the workplace to some extent to accommodate either accommodate parents and particularly mothers of young children or to accom- accommodate women re-entering the workforce after they've had children which I'm told is often really hard and employers are often not very sympathetic to those circumstances and they ought to be just on, on a self-interested basis they ought to be because you know you've got people with skills who are eager to work for you you know. I also don't think that it, complete parity is either possible or desirable because I think that trying to force people into being absolutely the same is is inevitably going to fail and I think the kind of coercive measures you would have to take to try and force them would come with really serious costs. I mean, I think to some extent being a there are definitely some men who are suited to being stay-at-home parents and who in previous eras would not would not have been allowed to and that would have been sad you know, because they, they might be really temperamentally well-suited to it and that's great for them. In reality, I think more women than men are going to want to do that and are going to be suited to that. The nature of the biological tug that mothers have to their babies is such that it's, it's a rare woman who is desperate to get back into the office after four weeks or whatever because y- you want to be close to your baby. It's just such a powerful tug
1: and again this is something that people won't admit. Mm. It, there's a powerful to and I don't have I don't have children and so I actually observe this. I, I can truly be an objective ob- observer but you know people talk about the wage gap it, that's the gender wage gap is a motherhood penalty. And then you and then so you ask yourself okay, well why why are women they're they're being kept out of the workplace um are they being you know they're being forced not to go back to work. Well, a lot of them there are just little tiny granular aspects of parenting that women are doing, or impo- sometimes they're imposing on themselves that men just don't do. I mean, I've, I've had this conversation with several people on the show, including Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein. So, okay, what, whatever you feeling about their vaccine line of inquiry these days, you know, we had a fascinating talk just about the biological differences between motherhood and fatherhood and what women think Needs to be done and do with their children and their babies. That's just it's it's like there's a there's a much shorter psychic leash between a mother and a baby than a father and a baby, and there I'm sure there's a lot of good reasons for that.
0: Mm-hmm. What I have personally observed and what I think is also evident in in the research, including you know this is like biochemical level stuff, right? You can measure things like men's testosterone levels after they that after they have children and things like that is that you can kind of persuade men to behave more like mothers and things like having having a child lowers a man's testosterone levels, you know, lowers his desire to, uh, lowers his sex drive.
1: You mean, so they would lower his desire to go to sleep with other women because yeah. that's a way, yeah, and that's, that would be, a that would evolutionarily make sense. Yeah. Right. And,
0: you know, men can, and this happens not only when men have children, but when also when they're involved in their care um men are, commit less crime when they've just had children like there, there are basically loads of ways in which men are feminized um by childcare, um in a good way <laughs> right like that's that's not that's not designed to be pejorative but yeah like in a very literal way and um whereas i don't think that persuading women to behave more like fathers works or if it does, i.e. to be more distant from their children, to be less involved in their care, to not have that kind of psychological leash attached. I mean, I, I definitely found and still find sometimes my, my, um, our sons, um, always 16 months that, um, initially when I was separated from him for short periods, it was like I was get, going out without missing a limb. It was just bizarre, right? Yeah,
1: that's I've heard
0: that yeah. analogy before. And you, you very gradually get used to it, but you never, never. I'm, I'm told by the mothers of even adult children, you're constantly kind of thinking about where your children are. Are they safe? Whatever. It's like a permanent change to your brain. And I think that trying to persuade women somehow, or women trying to persuade themselves not to feel like that about their children, is a recipe for for distress. To be honest, I mean this whole—I—I I, I despise this thing in the corporate world, in particular, where encouraging women to separate themselves from their babies is presented as empowering in any way. You know, like Goldman Sachs paying you to FedEx your breast milk to your newborn so that you can go on work trips or that kind of thing. To me, that is just completely the opposite of a feminist—a feminism focused on care and women's actual, actual biological needs and is all just to do with trying to kind of mutilate women so that they can be more like men.
1: I mean, it's all of these sort of quote unquote advancements and these these cultural, th- these things that we see as, as progress and a better way of being and more inclusive, for instance, it really does just kind of miss the forest for the trees. I mean, you make this great an- analogy, actually, this might seem like a strange leap from what we were just talking about, but I love when you talk about the emergence of these new gender neutral sexual minority categories like for instance there's this concept of demisexual (laughs) which is um, a person who is only sexually attracted to people that they feel emotionally close to is that right?
0: Yeah, someone who has typical female sexuality. Exactly. So beca- <laughs> so the first time I
1: encountered the first time I encountered this term it was with a, a a young woman, I think she was a college undergraduate and she identified as demisexual. And she was saying that the, when she had first come out to her mother as de- demisexual, <laughs> her mother so said, "Well, honey, you're, you're just a girl." <laughs> and, and she was uh, totally offended by this. That's so funny. And flummoxed. Listen, listen to your mother. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so, but it. I think that this is speaks to a larger thing, which is that you know the identity categories are just becoming more and more thinly sliced. And that is coming about because we're denying these basic biological differences. I mean, we we're so unsettled by having a binary, like you know, there's men are this, most men on average are this way, most women on average are this way. There are a million exceptions. There are always liars. Excuse There's a distribution curve, but it's it's pretty simple. And I just I I keep wondering why there's such. Resistance in so many aspects of our society to the simplest explanation.
0: Yeah, Occam's razor, right? Like, yeah, the, <laughs> like if you look, particularly if you look at certain uh, sexual behavior differences that you see across cultures, across time uh, time periods, or whatever, and it's always the same. You think, come on, have you really flipped flipped the coin a hundred times, a thousand times, and it's come up heads every time? Is this really down to socialization? Exactly, it just seems so implausible to me, and yet y- y- you get a lot of pushback. I mean James Daymore knows <laughs> knows better than we do. I mean, it's interesting, just just going back briefly to what we're talking about in terms of publishers and so on not not wanting to to voice these arguments. I have not got as much pushback as I might have expected this might This might turn out to be terrible dramatic irony saying this you know a week or two before my u s publication, but i I'm getting away with a lot. Like, I'd say like 90% plus of my press coverage is positive. 95% plus of my, the the emails I get from members of the public are positive.
1: I really just don't get any hate mail at all. Um, Oh, you must have an excellent filter. Is there a hate mail filter? I think you can buy that. You can install that. No, I'm
0: I'm 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 invite I'm inviting hate mail by even saying this. But no, I don't actually on my email account. I do on Twitter. I have notification filters on Twitter, but um in general hate is quite lazy. They normally don't seek out in my experience, they normally don't like seek out your email address because it takes like several clicks. And it's also private. They're more likely to send public abuse on Twitter because they get clout from that. Um and it's also easier. But um but yeah, in general, the pushback has really not been as much as you might expect. And I think that partly it's because I can say this stuff because I'm young and I'm female. And I think also being British is a little bit protective.
1: I was going to say, I think it's because you're British. You guys yeah, can yeah. get away with a lot that we can. It's
0: <laughs> <laughs> our so charming accents. Yes, it is. Um, and it's also, I think, because the, like the British, I'm, like, I'm, I can speak in confident terms in the British context because the British context is a bit more permissive on this front. And then to some extent, that can be imported into the States and I don't get as much pushback as you might expect. I mean, actually, like the pushback I've noticed online a little bit has been more directed at Barry for platforming me than at me personally.
1: I mean, just because I think like... Yeah, whenever you're next to Barry, you're not going to get any pushback because the the Barry derangement syndrome will suck all the air but out of the room. I was about to say Barry derangement syndrome, yeah, is so profound. <laughs> but um people seem to be really eager to hear this. They totally are. And I really, I I wonder if I hope things are changing. I, I don't, I, I'm trying to figure out why it is that you are getting away with this. Is it because that you're doing so many podcasts? Like, are you doing mainstream media? Like, is it the nature of the media landscape? I've been
0: in mainstream media too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got things like, My first big kind of press thing back in June was um, I got profiled in the Sunday Times, and you know a moderately critical profile by a young woman about my about my age, who I mean she personally came from a more kind of conservative background, so she was more focused on some of the ways in which maybe I was too soft on the on the on the conservative positions. You know, fine. I thought it was a completely fair write up, but they included a little. A poll on the website, which literally read, I read the Times every day. It's like my normal newspaper. So I I logged on and suddenly saw this poll, which said, do you agree with Louise Perry's opinions? (laughs) Yes or no, (laughs) inviting people to vote. And the answer was a resounding yes. Wow. And it was really interesting to look therefore at the profile, which is all about like, oh, very controversial, very provocative, yada yada and then readers being like, No, she's completely right and the, the comments were all along those lines as well, saying, Yeah duh, this is obvious. And I think that this I think this has been kind of operating for a while in that there's a sort of unspoken sense of agreement, but a feeling that it's not permissible to say it. And I think sometimes if if someone just says it and gets away with it, then other people will feel much more able to do the same thing.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I, I think that because you don't apologize, you are so unflinching. You don't spend a lot of time doing the to be sure stuff, you know, to be sure. There's always <laughs> been a patriarchy. Rape is terrible. know, I always like joke that you know, I just have like a sort of like, you know, macro key on my computer, I have, like, you know, command shift four and it just spits out this big uh,
0: yes
1: (laughs) (laughs) you know you you don't do that and i think that that um sends a message that you're not going to back down and that you're you're not you don't doubt yourself and i think that's really powerful and also frankly you're you're young people you're you're, we're being introduced to you on these terms These are your terms. You're not somebody like J.K. Rowling, who's had a whole other career and, a you know, a fan base that has been invested in her for a million other reasons. And then when she starts to say things that are difficult for some people to hear, that's an entirely different equation. I think that you're you're coming at us without any baggage. And that's a great position to be in. I think J.K. Rowling
0: is an apostate right as well. That's the other reason that she gets such a hard
1: time because she used to be such a darling of progressives. But anybody was a darling of progressives who wasn't like on the right, I, as in, in America anyway. I mean, if you were on public radio and you were reviewed in, you know, in the Times and you were more or less saying the right things, you were a a darling, of progr- a, a darling of progressives just meant that you were a darling of the media, that, the, that you were getting good publicity. That's the same thing. And um, I just I'm, I'm just I'm so glad to see that you have been received the way you have. It's it's actually it's, it's quite heartening. And I think it's a it's a testament to your just forthrightness and, and your courage and, and the fact that somebody published you. I mean, I'm not surprised that, you know, it was hard to find a publisher, uh, but I'm really glad that you that you persisted. Do you wish that you had grown up in a different time? I don't know.
0: No, I don't think so. I think you kind of just have to take the rough with the smooth of
1: your era right. And there are lots of
0: ways, you know, aside from anything to do with sexual culture, there are lots of ways in which I think life is better now. Just things like I, th- I think so much now with having a um a little child I think about the horror of infant mortality in the past. You know, you can't you can't ignore stuff like that. So and I just I think just in general I I mean the thing is I sometimes get get um accused by some of my um manosphere critics. I don't have that many of them, but there are a few, of being kind of oh, she's just been burned by the sexual culture and that's why she's kind of lashing out against it. It's actually not true. I mean I, I actually I think I've I'm actually speaking from a very lucky place. Yeah. Um, happily married and with a with a child and so
1: on, I, but wait, why are the manosphere critic? I would think the manosphere would like you.
0: No, they find me annoying because I'm saying they feel like I'm saying stuff and kind of getting plaudits for it. Just
1: oh, the same things of that having been a pair of Yeah, okay. Yeah,
0: and also they, and also I think they think that I'm just like speaking out of self-interest, which is yeah, not really true,
1: right? Well, and I'm am sure that the your third and fourth wave feminist critics. Say that you're speaking from a, a place of privilege. Oh yeah, but that's always the case. Yeah, but you know, I think I think again, I think that you're able to to speak objectively about this. And frankly, who cares? You're a writer. You're a thinker. It doesn't matter. Your your lived experience really is only is only part of it. You know, it's not it's not a memoir. Uh, you've written. Um, you know this this book is 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 heavily researched and it's it's an intellectual endeavor i think um it should be received as such and it seems like it is so well uh it's great to talk with you congratulations on the book i'm really glad that it's been received as well as it has thank you so much and um uh, good luck with everything and i hope we can talk again sometime
0: yeah i'd love to (laughs) thank you so much megan
1: that was my conversation with louise perry she is a columnist at the New Statesman and a features writer for the Daily Mail. Her debut book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution: A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century, is recently out in the US. This is The Unspeakable Podcast, now on Substack at megandown.substack.com, as I've told you way too many times already. It's also everywhere you normally get your podcasts. Nothing has changed. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, if you're so inclined, anywhere you get your podcasts. Please also check out my new podcast with Sarah Hader, A Special Place in Hell. Please consider just like doing nothing, never getting out of bed, not cleaning a room, (laughs) eating lunch, anything. Don't do anything but listen to podcasts because there are a lot of them. Two of them are mine. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.